We know that empathy is the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. Well, there's a course at Fordham University that takes teaching empathy to a whole new level. I'm Robin Shannon, and this is Fordham Conversations, a show that taps into the Fordham University community to discuss and uncover issues that impact our world. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Ann Hoffman and Dr. Jason Morris. These Fordham professors use science, literature, music, and more to teach the course Diverse Biology, Shared Humanity. It's where students both learn about and perhaps grow in empathy for people they might not otherwise have become acquainted with. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. And Jason, this seems like a very broad topic. So how did you get together and break it down? Well, you know, first we really decided that you cannot teach empathy directly, that we needed to introduce the concept and open up questions and really make the space for critical reflection on what it means to empathize with another person. I think the most interesting part for me was bringing the science together with the humanities material. So reading an article about the social behavior of rats or reading a review essay on mammalian empathy and then working with poems was extraordinary. Yeah, I agree. In terms of how we divided the topics, uh, narrowing it down, um, we probably could have narrowed it down more than we did. We uh, we just thought about all the different kinds of diversity that there are in our society because the the course was originally designed to uh, meet a requirement for uh, something called American pluralism. Um, and we just thought about all the, the different kinds of diversity there are in terms of uh, race, gender, ethnicity, sexual orientation, um, but also uh, neurobiology um, and addiction and deafness and... Uh, so we sort of came up with this list, and then we thought, well, what would have good material to teach along with that? Um, and I agree with Anne. The, the The most exciting thing was being able to bring in all this material from all these different kind, different kinds of fields and and uh, different <laughs> media, and really educating the whole person and really trying to evoke responses from people from their critical uh, faculties, from their emotions, from their personal histories, um, and from their responses to the text. So you two got together and decided, okay, we're going to kind of break down this empathy. How did the students respond? I want to say first that Jason and I had a two-person study group for eight or nine months. Uh, We had weekly meetings. We considered topics. We brought texts together. So this was, it was a full engagement between us in this sort of new combination of texts and materials and learning experiences. And we framed the course with critical reflections on empathy, which involved some philosophical readings. It involved poems, which we can talk about in terms of how we use them in the classroom, um, and some of the scientific studies of empathy as, as a facet of animal behavior. So we opened and closed with that. All of this was really meant to provoke the students into thinking deeply about what empathy means. And I do want to get into the poems and I want to get into the literature, but let's delve a little into the science of empathy. What role does biology and science play 
in this class? How did you bring it about? So there are, I'm a geneticist by training, and there's, uh, I guess before I taught this course, I already had an interest in some of these topics. I teach about um, sex determination, for instance, in my developmental biology class. And in my genetics class for a few years now, I've been uh, doing some material on um, why race is not a genetic category in, for humans. And that was, uh, that was something that uh, there was a, a tremendous response from the students. They felt that it was really important for them to know they really engaged with that. And so we brought that material into this course uh, and, and a lot more. And so some of the science is teaching us what we know about uh, the biology underlying some of the, the 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 different perspectives that people have based on their sexual orientation or their their ethnicity or, or whatever, um, and and uh, some of it is is based on showing that we we actually don't have a scientific basis for some of these categories that is purely cultural, and uh, we also talked a little bit about the the biology of living with with certain conditions, right, in in terms of addiction. Um, what happens to the brain in an addict. Uh, so we, we dealt with that kind of science as well. But we began and closed the course with a discussion of what science is learning about empathy, which is a really important cutting-edge field in neuroscience right now. And I think the fact that you had a scientist and a humanist in the room working together helped us to not collapse distinctions and be reductive and think, what I might have thought in isolation, wow, we've got a grand explanation for how empathy works. You sort of challenged each other. We sort, But we sorted things out. I mean, we read science articles, and we read poems and philosophical reflections on empathy. We read first-person narratives. You know, there were... A, it was the range of activities that we engaged in that sorted things out and also laid a groundwork to think about what brings these different areas of interest together. One of the things I found very interesting when I was looking through the the syllabus for your class is the idea that human tears contain chemical signals. Can you explain how you use this information in your class and kind of give us a a briefing on how that works? So I I think that Probably the first time many of us thought about empathy was when we were very small and we did something that made somebody else cry. And your parents had to explain to you that you caused someone terrible discomfort or, or pain and, and, and you had a, an emotional response to that. And so I thought this would be a really good paper to introduce early on. What is the purpose of human tears? How did this evolve? And um, in many animals, there are signals in the tears, and they can be they can be used for all kinds of of, uh, of purposes. Um, and the idea here was they uh, took particularly tears of sadness because potentially you could have different chemicals in your tears depending on whether they're tears of happiness or tears because you got something in your eye or just tears to keep your your eye lubricated. And uh, they were able to show that compared with just salt water, the tears of sadness lowered the testosterone and the sexual responsiveness in the men who smelled the tears, even though the men had no conscious uh, knowledge that there was anything in the tears other than salt water. They couldn't distinguish the smell of the tears from the smell of the salt water. That's how pheromones work, is on an unconscious level, right? When someone says, oh, was there chemistry between two people? Um, It doesn't have to be something that you're registering consciously. There's just uh, a heightened awareness or a different mood or a, a different 
physiological context in which you're receiving information from your environment, and so you, you, you react to it differently. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon, talking with Dr. Ann Hoffman and Dr. Jason Morris. These Fordham University professors use science, literature, music, and more to teach the course Diverse Biology, Shared Humanity, where students both learn about and perhaps grow in empathy for people they might not otherwise have been acquainted with. So is all this a way to examine empathy for someone else or for ourselves? You know, we were working with a group of people in the room, and we were very aware of that. And we devised different kinds of small group interactions and group interactions around a poem, going around the room, each person reading one line of a poem that is playing with pronouns I, you, in very interesting ways. So we never simply thought about, are we studying this in a way that's objectified in others or in ourselves? It's a mingled experience. Yes, and I, and I think we were really very sensitive um, to, to the idea that we didn't want to be catechizing the students. We didn't want to be telling the students, and now it is the time for you to experience empathy, and this is how you will uh, evince that empathy for us so that we will then give you a good grade, right? That wasn't at all what the course was about. And so one way that we problematized empathy from the beginning was talking about what we know and what we don't know about empathy and, and, and how little we understand about how empathy works and how difficult it is to recognize empathy in someone else and how complicated our own empathic responses are. And we read... Uh, we read accounts of child development from uh, from psychology. We read Frankenstein, where it was sort of the someone's coming to an awareness of his own identity at the same time that he was coming to recognize how he felt about others and their responses to him. Um, you know, and and we read a lot of first person memoirs. So that all of that gave us an opportunity, and the songs too. I mean, the the some of the first songs that we did were about seeing yourself through someone's eyes or seeing the world through someone else's eyes. What kind of music did you use around this particular subject? There, we used a lot of different genres in the course. For this particular one, I mean, you could have chosen a lot, but, but um, I chose... If you were Jason, you could have chosen really <laughs> a, I'm a lot. I'm a big music fan. But uh, we chose I'll Be Your Mirror by the Velvet Underground uh, to talk about uh, how you might be perceived by others and perceiving yourself in others' eyes. And... and uh, the responses that that could evoke in you, so there's a lot of mirroring going on there. I be your mirror, reflect what you are, in case you don't know. And then uh, also um, Gary Gilmore's Eyes, which is based on a true story. Um, about What's this the story? There's this this murderer who did this, you know, all these terrible things, but he, he donated his eyes to, to uh, as an organ donor. And it's about a patient who wakes up realizing that now he's looking through Gary Gilmore's eyes. It's a very disturbing idea, um, and uh, just how you view Gary Gilmore and the donation of his eyes, and what it would mean to wake up and then be looking at the world through someone else's eyes, and then realize that it's the eyes of this person who committed these horrible crimes, but who also gave you the gift of sight. Um, there's a lot to explore there. I mean, it's a, it's a it's a very brief punk song with lots of yelling and, and just a couple chords, but the idea I think is really evocative <laughs> and provoking. And I also noticed you you used a, um, 
not just some some traditional songs and some fun songs, but songs from plays like uh, Hedwig and the Angry Inch, um, which was one of my favorite movies. Me too. Uh, what song did you use and why? Um, there were so many we could have done from here. Did, <laughs> did we do Origin of Love and Wig in a Box? Okay, so Wig in a Box is about performing gender, mm-hmm. and which is what the which is what so much of Hedwig is about. And it was a uh, because for those who don't know, tell them the quick story about. So uh, Hedwig was a person in East Germany who uh, ended up having a, a botched uh, gender reassignment surgery uh, that was undertaken. It's not clear why, whether it was something that was uh, expressing a real desire to, to be a, a different gender or whether it was a way to get into the U.S. as somebody's spouse when same-sex marriage wasn't recognized. Um, and, uh, and then this person, the, the Hedwig and the Angry Inch is the name of the, of the movie, and uh, the Angry Inch is both what's left over after the botched operation and Hedwig's punk band that Hedwig is fronting. Um, and uh, Hedwig is funny and bitter and smart, and uh, that, that's the play. Uh, but the, the Wig in the Box is about Hedwig working as a, uh, a supermarket checkout person uh, uh, as, a, as a woman wearing this uh, wig from 1960s glamour. I put on some makeup Turn on the tape deck And put the wig back on my head Suddenly I'm Miss Midwest Midnight Checkout Queen Until I head home And I put myself to that. And you did use Origin of Love also. Yeah, so Origin of Love is uh, is is based on uh, Plato's Symposium. Um, it's actually also related to a story found in the Talmud, although I'm sure that had nothing to do with how Hedwig was, was written. But um, this idea of how the sexes were generated and um, how originally everybody was uh, two people. And some people, some, some of those... Um, Duos were male-male, some were female-female, and some were male-female. And when they got split uh, by the gods who were afraid of their power, uh, they spent the rest of their lives looking for their other half. But I, I, I want to add to that that we worked with first person in so many different ways, whether it was a poem or a song or a narrative. And we also tried to put the students in the position of thinking about who is this I voice? If I'm reading a first person narrative written in first person, I'm putting a lot of myself into that experience. Or if we're listening to a song in which the singer is using an I. Where is that located, actually? So, so is that person actually beginning to develop the empathy or understand the empathy more? The students, you mean? Yes. You know, by the by the end of the of the course, we did have some projects that required the students to uh, respond to concerned parents who were worried about. Uh, possible uh, inherited condition and to do some scientific research to figure out what are the inheritance patterns here and what are the odds that a child (laughs) might be affected, but also to be able to describe 
um, what a child's life might be like if they if they did inherit uh, one of these conditions. Like, and give me an example of a condition, Jason. It, it, the students really had enormous freedom. So some of them chose, you know, enzyme disorders, and uh, you know, you could choose a, a susceptibility to addiction or. Um, uh, schizophrenia runs in families, but not in very predictable ways. Um, uh, so it, it, they 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 could have actually taken more latitude than they did. They tended to stay fairly um, fairly tightly bound to conditions with known inheritance patterns, but they wouldn't have had to. But the the idea that they had to think about the underlying biology of a condition, and also think about how that biology and our culture together create a lived experience for people with whatever that condition is. Um, I think required them, and then to communicate that to parents in a way that was professional but also compassionate. I think that that required students to to think a lot about their own responses and and hopefully to to grow in empathy a little bit. Yeah, I think what I would say is, in a lot of our classroom activities, in the readings and the class discussions, we were breaking concepts of empathy open and in ways that would bring students to reflect on them. And what Jason has just described, I mean, the genetic counseling assignment, or even we had students do an annotated bibliography on a research question that they posed and then do a research narrative, they had to consolidate. They had to bring the work that they had done home to themselves, and they had to develop their own voice. I want to um, move the conversation a little bit to the topic of like race and culture. Um, Answer me this. Who is Sarah Bartman and why was she known as the Hottentot Venus? Well, that was a notorious or very famous case from the first part of the 19th century. She was a woman who came from, was brought, she agreed to come from South Africa uh, to London, to Paris, and she was put on display. She had a physiological condition that produced very large buttocks, and this was she was an object of scientific interest and great popular interest as well. So it was sort of a phenomenon of mass entertainment. People came and paid money to look at her. So we brought and, and after she died and after she died, they put parts of her body on display they for did years indeed, in jars into, into the 1970s, I think. Um, so for us, this really introduced the subject of race and cultural division and nationality, you know, and the, sort of the the forging of distinctions or the formalizing of distinctions among races, which would then became a subject that we studied through the 19th century. And it was also, I think, it, it, it opened the door into critiquing uh, scientific overreach and uh, the, the capacity for uh, abuse of science to lead to objectification of people, uh, dehumanization of people, um, as, w- you know, as, as well as, I mean, the reason why we're able to, to tell so many of the other much more positive stories we're able to tell is because that's not all that science can do. I think that science provided really important context for conditions uh, like um, transgender, sexual orientation, um, 
sex and gender in general. Um, so, and certainly addiction. And so, uh, you know, it was important to have this example of uh, science not always being uh, a force for good. Yeah, but I think what I would add to that is in the readings that we did in 19th century thinkers, the texts themselves demonstrated the ways in which the writers who could be black or white were buying into the racial ideologies of the time, which were assumed to have a scientific basis. So if we were reading Emerson, for example, on races, or we were reading W.E.B. Du Bois, you know, they're, they're, this is the the scientific atmosphere of the time that puts a lot of credence into racial thinking. Yeah. Did you find you had to explain that it was necessary to look at some of these readings and poems and music for the time being that they were in? For sure. But I, I think that was an amazing part of the course because we had... Jason's scientific demonstration of the lack of validity to large-scale distinctions among races. So what do you do with that? That's the science of today, which explodes these racial ideologies of the 18th and 19th centuries. And yet we look at how people thought in ways that are grounded in those now discredited views. And they're not universally discredited now either, are they? I think this gets back to the the same issue that that plagued the the mirror neuron discussion in the in the in popular culture is that people are very anxious to take just a little bit of scientific knowledge and extrapolate from that. And generally, they're not extrapolating from that to undermine or overthrow their previous misconceptions. They're, they're you have a you have a uh, confirmation bias where you try to use whatever little bit of some some nugget from science that you can try to find to justify and to strengthen the the prejudices that you already have um, you know the first the first quality that a good scientist has to have is enough humility to recognize how little is known and how how little a particular piece of data sets our our knowledge forward and if you try to over extrapolate and over interpret and particularly in the context of your own prejudices you can do enormous damage so I think there's more of a continuum between scientific thinking and how it seeps into the culture. And I want to kind of narrow into uh, one of the books that you had your students read, which was David Halperin's How to Be Gay, or they read part of that. And uh, in it, he says, when it comes to defining what it means to be a homosexual man, sex is overrated. Culture matters more. Right. I think the excerpt that we read had to do with gay men expressing grief over losses due to AIDS and their adoption of the mode and the demeanor of Italian widows. And they were Italian men. Mm -hmm. So they were they were using something from their own cultural tradition, but they were being very transgressive in terms of gender. Give me an example of what that looked like. So this was on was it Fire Island? I think so. I think it was the the, the Fire Island. So these were these were men who had and and Halpern describes this beautifully. I'm not going to do it justice, but he talks about how um, traditionally in our society, male grief is not something that we know how to deal with because it's a vulnerable emotion. And uh, 
particularly grief that a homosexual man might feel for a lost partner is something that, at least in the 1980s, there was no way of expressing in a way that society would take seriously and respect. And drag culture is a lot about the, a play between something deadly serious and something deeply ironic. And so these, these young men who were very assimilated Americans were dressing like widows from Sicily from the previous century where they would dress all in black and they would cover their heads and they would march in this parade of grief wailing for their, their lost lovers um, in a way that demanded both that they be taken seriously and that would seem absurd to, to people who were, who were unwilling to recognize a man in drag as anything but a joke. So I think you described that beautifully, and I would generalize from it to the literary components of the course, which almost invariably involved taking on perspectives and positions other than one's own, and yet finding one expresses oneself in ways that are mediated culturally by forms of expression that are available, that are in the texts that we read. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, I think it also challenges the, someone who, who viewed the, the parade the, of grief to, to recognize, okay, on the surface, this is a drag performance. Beneath that is another layer where there's a very sincere mourning. And beneath that is another right. layer of this desperate sense that nobody is ever going to understand you, right? right. And so there's what, you know, what, what you can perceive with your eyes and with your ears is, is so much on the surface. And it, you have to do a, a lot of putting yourself in another person's position to get a sense of all the different levels of emotion that they're experiencing. Right. So I, I want to give an example of some work that we did with a poem that sure. I think exemplifies this in another form, in another activity. We had the students annotate online a poem by Emily Dickinson, which was, like so much of her work, brief, provocative, and somewhat cryptic. And we, so there were several stages. Students annotated. They just put brief phrases, comments. This makes me feel like this. This looks like this. Then as the next stage, we had them read each other's annotations. And as a further reflection, we had them write online blog posts reflecting on how they themselves had read the poem and what they saw in the responses of their peers. And that was really very interesting and productive for everybody to reflect on how poems work, even as you're letting the poem work in you in a way that can be very personal. And which uh, Dickinson poems did you use? Was it an honest tear? It was. Well, we had them write about a certain slant right. of light, right. but together with chemo signals, tears as signals, we had them think about an honest tear by Emily as well. Since we're talking about poetry used in uh, the course you both taught, Diverse Biology, Shared Humanities, I'm interested, and I, I looked this up, I read the poem, I couldn't get it, didn't understand it, but I found it interesting and compelling. It was The Red Wheelbarrow um, by William... Carlos, Carlos Williams. Williams. Yes. Um, 
help me understand how did this make its way into your class and how did you use this particular poem? It's a lot of fun to use. Yeah. It's very brief and you ask students, so what is this? Do you accept that it's a poem? What's poetic about it? How is it set up on the page? What does it provoke in you? I think, actually, we did that in our very first class, and we put them into small groups, and then we had the small groups report back as we reconvened as a whole to, uh, to look at the different ways in which we read the poem. It generates a lot. It's a very highly composed artifact as a poem. So there's a lot you can unpack from the very brief words. The images are very suggestive. You know, the fact that it starts with so much depends on and it doesn't tell you exactly what, it doesn't tell you anything about what depends on a red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens. So that sets off a lot of thinking in people. You know, childhood memories or my grandfather had a farm or Things like that. I think it also opens the class up to the idea that other people sitting next to them perceive the same very brief, seemingly simple text in very different ways. Indeed. And so that is an exercise in listening and in empathy and in building a community of, of students who are learning from each other. What would you like to see happen with this class? There's a lot that could be done with this course or courses like it elsewhere. I think that the idea of putting science and the humanities in dialogue with each other and having people respond to difficult issues that are really important in our society right now, using their intellect and their emotions, using what they've learned in their science classes and their literature classes and their film classes you know, and psychology classes, and to, to not just try to you know, give the answer that's expected for a particular discipline, but to respond as a person who's learned a lot and who's thought a lot about really important ideas, I would love to see more of that. I'd like to thank my guest, Fordham University professors, Dr. Ann Hoffman and Dr. Jason Morris. For WFUV's Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.